and welcome to the Dr. Dion Show on Business Radio X, where you can listen to smart dialogue about diversity, leadership, and behavior in the workplace and beyond. I am excited because today's show marks my one-year anniversary with Business Radio X. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having Thank us. Thank you. I'll introduce you in a second, but I wanted to, to let people know that we are broadcasting from the Sinesta Hotel Gwinnett Place Atlanta Hotel in Duluth, Georgia, and I'm joined by producer Mike Salmon. So today's show is actually a call to action. Today's shows, the name of the, today's show is called Stop Domestic Minor Sex Trafficking. In essence, the show is a call to action, as I just said. We're going to talk about this issue in detail. We're going to answer some questions like, what is domestic minor sex trafficking? How does it affect? Who does it affect? How many people does it affect? Where does it exist and how can we stop it? I just want to issue a warning right now to our listeners that if you have any children in the room while you're listening, you might want to ask them to leave or listen to this program at another time because we will be going into, um, I guess, sometimes in explicit detail as to what happens around this topic. So I would like to introduce our guest today. I'm joined by three incredible people who are actually in the front lines of domestic minor sex trafficking. They are Ms. Elizabeth Bingham. Special Agent with the Georgia Bureau of Investigations Child Exploitation and, Compu- and Computer Crimes Unit, Mr. Bob Rogers, CEO of Street Race, a faith-based organization that provides a comprehensive path to end domestic minor sex trafficking, and Ms. Tracy H. Kason, Deputy Chief Assistant District Attorney with the Gwinnett DA's office. Thanks so much for being here. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. So before we begin our conversation, can you each just kind of share who you are, what's your background, how you got into this field, anything you want to share with our listeners? My name is Elizabeth Bigham. I am a special agent with the Georgia Bureau of Investigation. I've been an agent with them since 2007. I am currently assigned to our Child Exploitation and Computer Crimes Unit. And in that unit, we work any sort of case involving child exploitation and child sex trafficking or domestic minor sex trafficking, as you mentioned earlier. Our SEAC unit houses the Georgia ICAC Task Force. It's the Internet Crimes Against Children Task Force, and it's made up of over 220 local and state agencies and prosecutors' offices around the state of Georgia. Um, they also work those same sorts of cases, child child sexual exploitation and domestic minor sex trafficking as well. Okay, thank you. Bob Rogers, I'm the CEO at Street Race, which is an organization, a not-for-profit here in Gwinnett County that focuses on ending the demand for uh, domestic minor sex trafficking or the sexual exploitation of children. We do that in a number of different ways. Most of them are program-based. We focus on prevention, awareness, and education. Uh, We do that by presenting training in a number of different venues. This year, we've presented since January 1st to about 63,000, 64,000 people, and 52,000 of them have been 18 and under. So that idea that knowledge is power in this space is particularly true when you're teaching a young person how to be aware, how to protect themselves and others, and how to speak out. And then we uh, also focus our efforts on those who would buy sex and those who are traffickers and working with the legislation and working with programs to help a deal address and, quite frankly, bring folks out from underneath the cloak of anonymity that so often surrounds this issue. Great. Thank you. And Casey? I'm Tracy Kaysen. I'm the Deputy Chief Assistant District Attorney with Gwinnett County District Attorney's Office, one of the three deputy chiefs. Um, As part of my duties, I oversee our Special Victims Unit. I've been in prosecution for 20 years with a primary focus of prosecuting crimes against children and adult sexual assaults. So the focus of my career has been protecting children, protecting those that have been vulnerable. Um, We also help uh, work with local law enforcement as well as the GBI uh, to do some prevention methods, to do some prosecution, uh, to do some operations, which we'll talk about a little bit later. And uh, I'm passionate about this topic, about uh, making sure that we get the word out, that we get um, and enable adults to be proactive and to save some of these victims from coming into contact with any of the three of us. Okay, great. Thank you. So I just wanted to add some, um, some, some, some stats around this topic. So trafficking women and children for sexual exploitation is the fastest growing criminal enterprise in the world. About 2 million children are exploited every year in the global commercial sex trade. Women and girls make up 90% of victims of trafficking for sexual exploitation. And annually, 100,000 American juveniles are victimized through prostitution. Those are com- pretty compelling numbers. Mm-hmm. So can we just start off by just, just some definitions? What is domestic minor sex trafficking? 
It kind of sounds a little bit funny because when people think about trafficking, generally people think about drugs and large volume of drugs. That's what the public has thought about for years. What sex trafficking is, and particularly domestic minor sex trafficking, is when anyone offers anything of value to an individual under the age of 18 to, in order for that individual to perform any type of sexual intercourse, sexual act, doesn't even have to include intercourse. They can do that by just simply offering something of value. They can also do that with coercion and duress so that they're forcing these individuals under the age of 18 to participate in these sex acts, saying, we promise we'll give you something of value. We'll promise that we'll buy you clothes. We'll buy you food. We'll put a roof over your head. Um, or in the alternative, they'll force them to do that and say, unless you do this, we're going to hurt you. We're going to throw you out on the street and take away your living, take away um, your food. You're going to uh, starve unless you do this. So anything of value for any type of sex act, and it has to be under the age of 18. So trafficking is, it has to involve the exchange of something that's of value. Right. Or the offer of something. The of offer value. of something. They don't them. actually have to pay them. They can um, indicate that they're going to pay them and just offer that something. They can entice them with getting something of value. Okay. So they don't even have to actually um, hold true on their promise. They can just say, if you do this, I'll give you, you know, X, Y, Z and never even fulfill that. And they've still committed trafficking. Trafficking is different from regular you hate to say the word regular, child molestation or child sexual abuse. But as we were talking about uh, just previous to the show, there is child sexual abuse that does not involve trafficking. It doesn't involve anything of value. And it's typically what people think of when they think of child molestation, uh, aggravated child molestation, a father, unfortunately, perpetrating on his son or daughter, because uh, we do have male victims in both of these arenas primarily they're female, um, or, you know, the family member, or sometimes you see a church member or a Boy Scout leader. We've had, you know, of course, Boy Scout leaders, mm -hmm. civic uh, organization leaders that have perpetrated on children, and not for anything of value, just for the purient and um, indecent and sexual gratification that didn't involve anything of value. Okay. I, mm -hmm. I think one of the things that Tracy just said is really critical for people to to at least be aware of, and that is anything of value. It's not just money. It, it can be an iPhone. It can be, um, it can be clothing. It can be drugs. It can be alcohol. It can be protection. It, it, can, it could possibly be, and you might know this to the definition of the law, we know of situations and cases where it's been a teacher that said, you have an F, but I know how you can get a B. Wow. Um, and, and that is an exchange, and those type things can be exchange of value. And I think oftentimes we think there has to be money that changes hands, and that's just not the case. Wow. Something interesting I thought of when Tracy was mentioning, you think of, when you think of trafficking, you think of narcotics or dope or, or drugs on the street. What we've started to see and the trend we've started to see and what we started to learn is that these gangs who were trafficking dope and narcotics are actually moving towards trafficking girls. And hmm. some of them minors, some of them adult, but they can make more money on a girl and they can sell a girl over and over and over again. Once they sell that cocaine, it's gone. They got to buy more and it's expensive. So we've seen that in, in some new cases that we worked in a case in particular that I've worked where the gang was trafficking girls because they could, they've learned that they can make more money with that. So that actually um, ties into something that I read, the site uh, Shared Hope International. And it says that children exploited through prostitution report, they typically are given a quota by their trafficker or pimp of 10 to 15 buyers per night. Though some service providers report girls having been sold to as many as 45 buyers. I think we discussed this, that you said that might be a little high in terms of your experience. But nonetheless, it's, it's instructive to hear these numbers because it's, it's, one is too much. Yes. And um, it goes on to say that utilizing a conservative estimate, a domestic minor sex trafficking victim who is rented for sex acts with five different men per night for five nights per week for an average of five years would be raped by 6,000 buyers during the course of her victimization through prostitution. That, those numbers are astounded. Yes. And, and um, can you speak to that a little more, um, Elizabeth, about your experience and what you've seen? Like we mentioned, the, 
the 10 buyers a night, that might be a little high, but it's it's only just from the cases that we've seen in Atlanta. That study may be from cases in New York or Oakland, California or wherever. But we we have had, I have had experience in cases where the victim was sold seven, eight, nine times in a night over and over and over again until she made enough money to satisfy her pimp. So I think what's crucial in that statistic is that you use the word raped, that they were raped Mm -hmm. uh, over 6,000 times. And that's what people need to understand. They may see an individual that appears to be willing and wanting to engage in these acts. But particularly with domestic minor sex trafficking, for those girls that are under the age of 16, they cannot legally consent Mm -hmm. to engaging in these. Now, the 17-year-olds... You get into that little murky area because of the way Georgia kind of deals with different ages in our state. But if they're under 16, they cannot consent. And that is a sexual act against their will. And I think people lose that when they see these victims on the street because they see, oh, well, she wanted to do that to get the iPhone or to get the drugs. Well, she doesn't doesn't want to do that. And she can't consent to it legally. She's a child. So I think it's very critical that people do see that these victims are being raped. Yes. Even though it appears they may be willingly going into these activities. Tracy and Liz both have made great points. I want to add one other comment to it, and that is one of the things that we hear often is folks ask the question, why don't they just get out? Why don't they just stop? Hmm. And I don't know a way to address that properly. The only thing I know to say is the only thing that I can think of that would be similar is if someone in the middle of the night in, the, in, a, in a horrible storm put you on a helicopter, dropped you off in the middle of the ocean in the pitch black dark while the waves were roaring and you had no idea which direction shore was, and then somebody blamed you for not reaching safety. Um, the, the trauma that these folks and these children, and think about this as 10, 12, 14, 16-year-old boys and girls, the trauma that they are experiencing is incomprehensible. And then to expect someone even after one incident, but much less hundreds or thousands of incidents in years and all of the other things that come with that, to be able to walk away from that and have a healthy perspective is, um, it's just wildly, uh, it's impossible. And I think we need to understand that and process that so mm-hmm. that we can understand how to better address the issue. And, and a lot of these children, they, 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 they are, well, these people that are pursuing these children, they are predators too. Mm-hmm. So they often Absolutely. look for their, the, the child's vulnerabilities. Right. If they're missing a parent, if they, if they, if they have no money, I mean, they, they know exactly who to go for. So it's not just this, it's not just this random thing. These people are the predators. And to piggyback off of that, a lot of these children are runaways and throwaways throwaway children. They're, and I've heard this from, from their mouths, the sexual abuse that they were perhaps receiving at home was worse than the abuse that they were rece- receiving by their pimp. Wow. So to them, in their mind, and mind you, you have to go into the mind of a 14, 15, 16-year-old at this point, not an adult mind. To them, it was better to stay out there, be raped every night, you know, eight, 10 times a night, whatever it may be, deal with your pimp beating you, deal with your pimp raping you on top of all of the Johns raping you, then have to go back to dad who molests you every single night. Wow. So, and I know that's, that's hard to comprehend for us because we're adults and we can reason our way through that, mm-hmm. but a kid can't. Mm-hmm. So many of them are running away from a situation that they perceive as much worse than what they're in right there. That's and, why they don't ever. And that gives a great opportunity to, to show that one of the really startling statistics is that 80 to 90% of the victims of sex trafficking are victims of child sexual abuse. And that is the ones in their home. When I do a presentation, we have a quote from a victim of sex trafficking that had been molested by her stepfather in the home. She says, you know, she couldn't trust her stepfather. She certainly couldn't trust her mother uh, who wasn't protecting her. She had nowhere to go. So she's out on the streets she doesn't have any food. She doesn't have anywhere to live. And then these predators come in and they offer these things. And it's like Liz was saying, and like Bob was saying, they don't want to leave that safety net for the worse abuse than they left or not even knowing where to go. They may not even have an, another abusive situation to go to. Mm-hmm. They may be one of those throwaway children that nobody cares about, unfortunately. You're listening to the Dr. Dion Show on Business Radio X. We are speaking today with Miss Elizabeth Bigham, 
Special Agent with Georgia Bureau of Investigations, Child Ex- Exploitation and Computer Crimes Unit, Mr. Barb Rogers, CEO of Street Grace, and also Tracy Kaysen, Deputy Chief, uh, Deputy Chief Assistant District Attorney. And we're talking about stopping domestic minor sex trafficking. We just talked about trust. Can we continue with that conversation? It has come up before in our conversations as well in terms of, um, unfortunately, there were women who are also a part of this. This, 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 this process. And people think, okay, sex trafficker, they, they often think it's male, but they're also women who are actually complicit in this whole dynamic as well. So can we, can we talk about that? Sure. So in, in my experience working these types of cases, um, we've seen where you have the pimp who's kind of the guy or everybody thinks is the guy. Most of the time it is. And he's kind of running the show. But a lot of times what he will do is take his most trusted girl perhaps maybe the one that's been with him the longest or the one that has been most honest with him or whatever, however he figures it out in his mind and and promote her, if you will, to his bottom or his bottom girl. She is now in charge of the other girls. So he will kind of push the responsibilities of perhaps making sure the girls get food, making sure they get their dates set up, making sure they get posted on back page, making sure they get condoms, lube, whatever it may be that they need to go do what they need to do for the pimp. Sorry, you said Backpage? What's that? So Backpage is a website. Um, it kind of started out as like a Craigslist where you could go buy a lawnmower or sell, what? yes, or sell, let's say, you know, your dresser that you've had sitting in your garage for five years. And then it started to move into this site where you knew and where people know to go get escorts and prostitutes. Wow. So years ago, the pimps started figuring out that they could advertise these minors. And of course, adults are advertised on there as well, either on their own free will or by a pimp. Um, but they can advertise these minors on that page and reach so many more customers or johns. So we started finding a lot of minors being advertised on Backpage. And that's kind of where you go to get the prostitute everywhere. And sorry, I interrupt you. So, so you said the, the bottom girl... She kind of manages the process yes. for the pimp? So, so, so the pimp will take his bottom girl and she'll kind of take on all the responsibilities and manage the other girls or the victims in, in their ring. And then the pimp kind of gets to get away from it all. He gets to be there. He's obviously the one taking half their money or keeping all of their money, whatever he chooses to do. He's facilitating everything. He's probably the one carrying a gun and protecting them and sitting outside the hotel room where his girl goes in to perform the sex act but he's kind of out of it enough. So if if he does get arrested or their whole thing gets taken down, he gets to stay away from most of the evidence, I guess, mm-hmm. for lack of a better word. And his bottom kind of takes on the, the, fall, that, the, fall, the, girl, the fall The fall, yes. The fall girl. Yeah. Okay. So sometimes it's difficult to prove everything the pimp's done, even though we know that he's the one controlling everything. And then it's legally, not, if you can't prove it, then he's just gets, he gets off or what happens? I mean, it, yeah. legally, it, yeah, there's there's different ways to wrap it in and, and things like that. But okay. I mean, and that's where law enforcement, of course, comes in when they do their investigation and um, and they'll do computer forensics and they'll uh, go back behind the back page ad, if you will, and figure out where it's being posted and hmm. what the phone numbers that are in there mm-hmm. and you know, it's funny how when you call that number, it rings to him. And so there are ways you huh. can tie that individual to the trafficking, much like, I mean, it's much like the drug trafficking trade where you have your big time dealer and then he has uh, carriers for the drugs and that kind of stuff. So he wants to distance himself. But there are ways and there are law enforcement investigative techniques that are similar to the ones that have been used in the drug trafficking trade that can also be used in the sex trafficking trade to tie those pimps and those individuals into it. Uh, but just because they're using this individual, this bottom girl, I mean, she's actively trafficking. That's right. I mean, she's complicit in this. She may well have started as a victim, and we would have to look at the specifics of each case to determine, is she actually being the bottom girl under duress or because she's afraid? And is that really just a component of his trafficking? And if that were the case we would not necessarily prosecute her. She would actually just be a witness against him. Okay. It's a case-by-case case basis, yeah. too. Where is this happening? <laughs> uh, who wants that one? <laughs> yeah, um, it's happening everywhere. Yes. Where, wherever, one of the things that, that we say often is wherever you are, trafficking is occurring. Human trafficking, sex trafficking wow. is occurring. 
It doesn't matter if you're on the east or the west, the south or the north. It doesn't matter if you're inside the perimeter, if you're outside the perimeter. Human trafficking, sex trafficking is occurring there. Um, and one of the things that's been, I guess, most eye-opening to me over the last couple of years as we've gotten deeper in this and we've been able to be a part of some of the operations and things that were taking place is that if you if you want to know what a survivor of human trafficking or if you want to know what a buyer of sex or a trafficker looks like, um, as confusing and disarming as it sounds, you just have to look to your left and to your right. Um, it, it is amongst wow. us. It shops where we shop and it lives where we live and it goes to church where we go to church and hmm. it goes to work where we go to work. And so one of the most challenging things about this is this this whole umbrella of anonymity and secrecy that's been a part of it since its inception. And that's what the law enforcement folks are doing a spectacular job of right now is, is bringing this thing out of the bushes um, and addressing it head on and in a very public way. And so for me, one of the most alarming things has just been that, that this doesn't just occur somewhere, it occurs everywhere. And also something to add is I think one of the myths that that people believe is that this is only an international issue. This is what you see in Taken or mm-hmm. whatever other movie Hollywood's decided to come out with um, on this topic. It's not. It's very domestic. It's happening, like you said, in our communities. It's to our left. It's to our right. And it's happening in our rural communities. I've had cases in Athens, Oglethorpe County. I mean, those aren't metro Atlanta communities. They're mm-hmm. an hour and a half from metro. So it's happening in all of those areas as well. And a lot of people, I think there's this myth as well that Atlanta is like the number one place for domestic minor sex trafficking and trafficking in general. And we don't necessarily think that we're number one per se, but we think that because we've got, you know, the busiest airport in the world, we've got interstates that cross mm-hmm. throughout metro Atlanta. It makes it easier for a, tra- or a trafficker to traffic victims here. Okay. They have access to everything just like it's basically the reason why you and I live here because we have access to everything mm-hmm. at at our fingertips. Same thing for them, just on the trafficking side. Okay. So, so um, can you talk about Operation Spring Cleaning? Right. So we did an Operation GBI, partnered with Gwinnett County Police Department, Gwinnett County DA's office, and then we used many agencies from our ICAC task force. It would take me an hour to name them all, um, but from around the state of Georgia, and we did a proactive undercover operation in. April of this year. Mm-hmm. It was where we we targeted predators. We targeted predators that wanted to essentially come meet with a child for sexual purposes. It could be sexual intercourse or anything else. And one half of our operation targeted the Johns, targeted the demand of sex trafficking, did some undercover work, and were targeting guys that were interested in coming to have sex with a 14, 13-year-old for or in exchange for money. This is via computer? Is via it? computer, okay. yes. Okay. Yes. So we went on um, specific websites. We targeted through different ways that we have of doing things mm-hmm. um, and, and did that. And I believe we arrested 23. Mm-hmm. Wow. And I, I can't recall. I want to say like eight or nine of them were, were for sex trafficking, mm-hmm. specifically for a sexual act in exchange for money. Wow. Others were, were in exchange for different other items. Right. But there were... A number of them that were simply wanted to pay money to Almost have sex half. with a with a yeah. child. Yeah, I remember yeah. seeing that reported on um, Channel Two News. Yeah, I saw. Yeah, and and it was made very clear that the that the who they believed they were coming to have sex with was a child. Wow, was, was a fourteen year old child. Now, so is is that is that is that not entrapment or is just what no. is what is that? It's just. It's not. You present an opportunity and they took it and that's their fault? or That, that is good police work. Yes. That <laughs> okay. is, that that is, is good exactly. police work. Fantastic. And we need more of it. Absolutely. And that's one of the reasons um, why the GBI does partner with so many people because law enforcement has what they need to do. But if we can't get it into court and can't successfully prosecute it, then that's just wasted resources. Mm-hmm. And so we were actually very closely involved with them, had someone from our office involved each and every night. and. Because that's one of the biggest defenses. Mm -hmm. Oh, I was entrapped. Mm -hmm. But one of the the key things is any type of sexual conversation is always initiated by the perpetrator. Mm -hmm. It's never initiated by law enforcement ever. And so it is clearly not entrapment um, when they initiate that, when they're 
placing an ad, they're the ones placing an ad that's looking Mm -hmm. for sex with a child or they're... Really? Yes. They will place ads. They will go on chat rooms and say, I'm looking for... They explicitly say that. They say it in their code. Wow. Like that these people know what the code is as to what certain things mean. And like you say you're age 99, they know you're under eight. Oh, yeah, and you you will see things at least in the, the 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 spaces that we're in, which is different than law enforcement. You'll see young, you'll see fresh, you'll see new to town, you'll see schoolgirl, you'll see young and bubbly, hmm. you'll see energetic and enthusiastic. All these code so all words, all these euphemisms. For, yes, mm, yes. Wow, that's incredible. I'm sorry, I'm 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 shocked here. So. I actually like that approach, too, because I, I think I did tell you, too, that um, in reading up on this and do my research on this show, I was kind of incensed by learning that a lot of the victims are actually kind of thrown in jail sometimes because they are victims. And yet they have um, because they have participated in in sex trafficking, that which is which is obviously you're breaking the law doing so. And and so that, that speaks to the, 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 the idea of criminality versus like a social issue. Can we talk about that? And, and how does Georgia approach that that fine line? Well, it is a fine line. It's a it's an education process. And, you know, we're really just within, I would say, the last probably three years are really doing a much better job of educating law enforcement officers and agencies of how to deal with this. Because initially it was just, I see a girl either on the street or through the internet, which that's where a lot of it is, is the internet. You don't have streetwalkers that much anymore which most people, that's what they think of. But they just see this girl that's selling herself and they arrest her because that's the easy thing to do. They know it's prostitution and they arrest. Um, We're just now starting to educate law enforcement officers to ask the questions to determine that A, they are underage and so they can't make those decisions on their own and B, what are the motivating factors for that child to be out there to determine that they are actually a victim of sex trafficking and so not to make the arrest in the first place. Unfortunately, what we also have, though, are individuals um, and girls, and again, we, we do have males, but primarily uh, girls, that appear older than they are. They appear 19 or 20. They may have a fake ID, so they are arrested because they think that they're adults that are voluntarily engaging in this activity so they're arrested for prostitution. And then once they start processing, they realize they're actually underage. Mm-hmm. And at that point, then the focus shifts. Okay. Unfortunately, with some law enforcement agencies, though, it doesn't shift. But we're, we're getting there and we're starting to educate and we're starting to turn the tide. And I, I want to give an appropriate plug for, um, for Tracy and Liz and Brian Johnston and the GBI folks. We have a, a program called Demanded End. And it's a statewide initiative that we go into different states through the attorney general's office. But in Georgia, we take it down to the local city and municipality. So we go in, Street Grace does, and we train folks that work in the city, in the, in the county governments, and um, hmm. in the different agencies and other community partners. But the GBI comes in and trains the law enforcement. And so uh, I know in 2016, um, they were they successfully trained 100% of the Gwinnett County Police Department Fantastic. and have been a part of other police department trainings. I know that right now they do all this with very limited resources. Mm-hmm. And, so, um, and so I know that we've got a backlog now of training that's ready to do. Um, and those folks always are engaged and are always out front leading and training law enforcement. They do a spectacular job. And the coolest thing about it is every time they train a department, it is like clockwork. Within 30, 60, 90 days, you're going to hear story after story after story really? of officers that encountered something, ran into something, and because they now knew, wow. it rang a bell, and they knew what steps to take or what questions to ask or what rock to turn over, um, and, and we've uncovered it. They have uncovered so many different them um, and been a part of the solution in so many cases. Yes, that's absolutely true. And I think we've all participated in those trainings. Mm -hmm. But I believe we just finished or we're about to finish training Georgia State Patrol, Mm -hmm. the entire Georgia State Patrol. Fantastic. And what we're trying to train them to do, and I believe this was a Texas model that um, the Texas Rangers came and taught us, was treat it like interdiction of drugs, like how you get on the highway and they find drugs in people's cars. Same concept, just Hmm. with, with sex trafficking of minors. 
um, treat it that way. And and you're right. I know not too long ago, maybe last year in um, Greene County, a trooper rescued a, a victim, a child victim that had been all over the place being trafficked um, just because he was trained and he knew what to look for now. So, That's great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this It really does go back to one of the statements that someone said at the beginning uh, that we talked about at the beginning, that knowledge is power. Absolutely. Um, it, this is the biggest, it's been the biggest challenge is getting the word out and then getting folks to believe it. You know, Delta Airlines here in Atlanta just did a global hmm. get on board campaign and we got to be a part of that and their training and they've already trained, I think about 65, 75,000 of their 84,000 uh, member workforce. That's amazing. So just some phenomenal efforts that are occurring. And, and as a former classroom teacher, I know that's also important for teachers to have that kind of training since a lot of children, they, they spend most of their days or their, their hours in the schools, in, in, in the classroom. So can we speak to that a little bit in, in terms of, you know, in, we, we're, we've talked about um, Delta employees. We've talked about different um, police, policing. Uh, this stuff should be taught in schools. No, yeah. And yeah. I, I can I can speak briefly to part of it. And then Tracy or Liz may want to say something else. We are engaged through the local Rotary Clubs in some of the schools in the Johns Creek, North Fulton area. In Gwinnett, um, not as much yet. But in those areas, we're beginning to enter the clubs and carry a program into the student-led organizations Mm -hmm. so that they can carry the word out and they can create awareness amongst themselves. So it's a peer-to-peer campaign um, because, quite frankly, again, all of us have very limited resources. But as long as we create the opportunity for the students to interact amongst themselves and train and help educate each other, it's something that we're really excited about. I think it is important to train uh, the teachers, and the teachers do get training as far as uh, trying to identify some uh, victims of child sexual abuse. Mm-hmm. And we talked about earlier that 80 to 90 percent of the victims of sex trafficking have been sexually abused um, in a non-trafficking manner. Uh, so the schools are getting some uh, training as well. What One of the things that the DA's office is involved in, we're a member of the Gwinnett Coalition, Child Sexual Abuse Prevention Committee, and we are um, a purveyor and a teacher of a program called Stewards of Children. It's from Darkness to Light. Uh, It's the organization, and it is a a two-and-a-half-hour class aimed at adults of how to recognize uh, signs of sexual abuse, child sexual abuse, how to recognize where there may be opportunities for abuse to happen, because most child sexual abuse happens at the hand of someone that the child knows. Mm -hmm. There is stranger, but most of it is at the hand of uh, someone that they know, and it's opportunistic. Again, we do have predators, but a lot of child sexual abuse happens because there's an opportunity for it to happen. And so this course teaches how to recognize those opportunities, how to minimize those opportunities, and how to identify a child that may be a victim And we like to say, if you see something, say something. So if you do see those things, you need to say something. What we're going to try to do is target uh, bus drivers because we do have teachers that are already getting some training with mandated reporting and things like that. But a forgotten area are the thousands of bus drivers, particularly here in Gwinnett County, Mm -hmm. that come into contact with these children. Oftentimes, they see the bus driver not necessarily as an authority figure, but more of a confidant and may share with those bus drivers or may be more willing to be open with those bus drivers. So we want to train them to look at those signs and empower them. And what should those bus drivers be looking for? Uh, Looking for the child that doesn't want to go home when they get off the bus. Looking for the kid that's, you know, in the back of the bus that when, you know, they come to their bus stop, they're very reluctant to get off. Obviously, if they see uh, clearly bruises or things like that, that uh, normal children shouldn't have. I mean, normal children have bruises on your bony areas, mm-hmm. elbows, knees, things like that, that are just going to, that we as adults have bruises on too. Mm-hmm. But, you know, soft areas um, inside of the arm, things like that, that you can readily see. Um, those are the types of things. If they see a kid that's normally been happy the first part of the year, and now they see a completely different change in personality. You know, let let the school counselor know, hey, I've got this kid. And it may not even be sexual abuse. They may have another issue. Mm-hmm. And if they can alert that school counselor, then maybe they can address another issue that by the time the kid gets to school, you know, they've put on their they put on their school face. Yes. And they're not, you know, their guard isn't down anymore like it might be on the bus. And, and another huge indicator that I've seen, uh, actually, when I was a teacher, I um, 
interrupted actually some um, sex abuse of a, of a child, of a 14-year-old I didn't realize. And, and how I figured it out was that she was very disruptive in my class. She would come in and I would kind of just challenge her. And um, she ended up trusting me and, tell, and told me what happened. And so a, a, a very, um, that's a very clear thing. Of, is, is, is when kids act out, they're acting out for a reason. It's a symptom of something going on behind, behind the scenes. So it's important for educators and anybody that has contact with children, they should they do an investigation, ask some questions. And, and you're, 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 you're smart, you're the adult, so you can find ways to kind of finesse and, and get some information without them realizing you're getting the information out of them. So it's, it's our duty to do that, to do diligence and to make sure that the kids are, are, are safe, regardless of who we suspect may be involved. And that's very important because most, you know, victims, and we've heard from survivors who said, I mean, all the signs were there, but nobody asked me about it. Wow. Kids are very hesitant to just volunteer. We have that. We have outcries. um, But a lot of them are just like, I was trying to get someone to notice and nobody ever asked me. So the fact that you did that, I mean, that's what adults need to do. It is our duty to protect these children. It's our duty you know, the onus should not be on that child. It should be on us. Absolutely. So in, so I'm a mom of two girls that are 13 and 11, and I hear some odd things sometimes from their, from stories that they tell me about their, about their peers. So from a, from a parenting perspective, like I, I, I like to think I have an open conversation with my parent, my, my kids all the time, and they come and tell me information. But, but at what point should there be concern. Like, at what point should there be? It's hard if you're hearing things secondhand. First of all, you're hearing things secondhand. But if you hear of a child cutting herself and just doing this kind of weird thing, sending explicit photos of themselves, that's a, that's a concern, is it not? And I know there there, there are several indicators that that that, that um, collectively mean something. But if it's individually, not necessarily something. But how do you know? How do you gauge? What do you do? As far as for child sex trafficking or child abuse, or, 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 or all of the above. Like, how do you? At what point should you intervene? Like, is is it enough just to suspect something? I think I think um, Tracy, you spec- you said something about spidey senses. Can you you want you want you want to share that? Sure. If you um if you have just a suspicion that a child is a victim of any type of abuse, uh, any person can call DFACS, can call the Department of Family and Children's Services and make an anonymous report. You don't have to leave your name. You can just say, "I've got this." Um, sense or the suspicion that, you know, child uh, Jane Doe is being abused. And as long as you can give them some information, they are going to go investigate uh, that. Um, But also, if you think the child is in immediate danger, you can always call 911 and say, I think this, I think this kid is in danger. And there's, you know, the law is going to protect you if you have a, a good faith basis for making those reports. I was going to ask that. What if you're wrong? You know what? I would rather every single adult be wrong. I would rather mm-hmm. 10 reports be made and 10 what we call unsubstantiated reports that, you know, it was just a misinterpretation, a misimpression, um, and there wasn't anything going on. Okay. Um, it's better to be wrong. Yes. Much better to be wrong. Can I add something with regards to your question about your daughters? Um, I, I think one of the things that we often take for granted is that the way to have a discussion and the way to be ready when something, if something ever was to occur, was to make this a part of everyday conversation. Hmm. It's an interesting thing, at least to me, as a father of three, how the topic of sex has become so taboo mm-hmm. in the church, in the home, and in public. And, and I'm not sure who did that, and I'm not sure who started it, but I do know for a fact that millions of kids have paid the price because of our silence. And so if you're not having conversations literally around the dinner table about sex and about how you handle sexual things and what relationships look like between two human beings, what's appropriate and not, what's not appropriate, you need to be having those conversations, in my opinion, when your kids are eight. Absolutely. Um, and, and there are many people that will say, you know, eight is too late. But when you think about children today, the average kid that will see hardcore graphic pornography mm-hmm. between the ages of eight and 10 because of the mobile devices that yes. we have, and you think about what is, you have to view this differently. We lock our doors. We have alarm codes. We shut our garage doors. We lock our cars. But we don't have conversations about some of the things that can do the most damage to the people that we love and care the most about. Mm-hmm. Um, 
that's the single most powerful thing we can do. And yeah. it goes back to if you want your daughters to talk to you when they're 11 and when they're 13 and when they're 16 and 18, then you need to be leading when they're eight and when they're six. And we need to have these conversations so that folks know what is appropriate and they know what a safe and trusted adult looks like. Absolutely. And and I'll add to that, too, that I find it's interesting. There's, there's this interesting kind of dichotomy where uh, the, the the kids shouldn't, you shouldn't be talking about it, but yet they're being inundated with all these images Absolutely, uh, with the internet, as you just said. And then you have people that have, that make sex tapes that become famous. And I said, that person is not someone you should be idolizing. That person just basically just got where they are just by selling their body or doing whatever. And that's not appropriate. So I, I, I completely agree with you. And, and uh, I try to be very candid with my, with my girls. I would imagine and, that um, you are. Yeah, <laughs> maybe a little bit, <laughs> but it's, it's important to do so because they do, they do learn things from the internet and from their friends. And I tell my, I tell my girls, your friends know nothing. Come to me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, Well, and just to piggyback off that a little bit, that's a great point that you made, was most of the cases I work primarily involve child pornography or child sextortion on the internet, things like that. Essentially, kids talking to predators online. And these guys are trying to get sexually explicit pictures from them, things like that. We've had cases, and I've specifically have had cases with nine-year-olds that have taken pictures at the predator's direction, sent them pictures that were extremely sexually explicit wow. that no nine-year-old should ever be taking or doing. And it's because they're online and it is just an open forum. These guys can get to them. We've had cases with with when they're chatting on PBS Kids. I mean, normal sites that you wouldn't think anything about. It's what? not just Facebook and Kick and Instagram. It's PBS Kids and Minecraft. You can chat in Minecraft now. We've had predators on Minecraft. Predators wow. online will go to where the kids are, and that's where they're going to find their victims. And if we don't talk about it with our kids and say, like, this is what you've got to be aware of, then you are going to have a victim on your hands. We are tasked with, with some of our grant funding. We have to do internet safety presentations, and I'd go to schools all over the state doing internet safety presentations. We include the child sex trafficking portion of that with a couple of videos and what to look for and what what's going to happen. But we also include a lot on online grooming and online predators because that's where it's hitting most of our kids nowadays. Wow. As young as eight, nine years old. It's incredible. So so in terms of penalties, what what what's what's so we talked about operation spring cleaning. Spring cleaning. What kind of penalties do these people face? Depending on the nature of their their chat, what their discussions were, what their agreements were, um, some of those offenses are in our 10 to 20 year range, wow. so 10 years to 20 years. But some of them, um, depending on the level of coercion or, or things like that, in addition to the enticement uh, for uh, the money or for things of value, you're looking at a 25 to 50 years sentence or a life sentence. Wow. I mean, we're, I mean, serious business. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Georgia has, in my opinion, done a, a really good job the last several years of bringing some out of date laws up to date. Uh, we still have work to do as do other states, but the legislators, uh, especially Senator Unterman and Chuck Estration, uh, Burt Reeves, and a number of those folks have been actively engaged in this. You may recall that last fall in 2016, Georgia voted overwhelmingly for a constitutional amendment for the Safe Harbor Yes campaign, which allowed mm-hmm. the state to now start setting monies aside in a dedicated fund that can only be used for restorative care wow. for victims of sex trafficking. That's a huge step wow, when you awesome. think around the state. Georgia is um, it has positioned itself well and is a leader in the country in a number of different areas of restorative care and prevention and protection. And so this provides funding for that. Additionally, this year, HB 341 was passed uh, and was signed into law uh, July 1st of this year. That's the first time that we have in this way separated out the language and the penalties associated with not just traffickers, but those who would get arrested for buying sex. So if you get arrested for buying sex in the state of Georgia after July 1st, Hmm. not if it's with a child, that's a felony and there's lots of other things that kick in. But if you get arrested for purchasing sex for the first time in Georgia, you're going to spend a minimum of 24 hours in jail. So you won't be home for dinner that night. Wow. Um, and again, all of this kind of goes to this idea of pulling back the veil of anonymity that people have been able to hide under. And so that's a significant step forward as we begin to execute that and, and enforce it uniformly across the state. You're listening to the Dr. Dion Show on Business Radio X. I'm speaking with Elizabeth Bigham. 
Barb Rogers and Tracy Kaysan. We're actually coming towards the end of our show. I'm still kind of confused as to how these predators are finding these girls and boys. Like, do they come up to them in the mall? Like, how, what, what is, how does that happen? So I have had cases where they've gotten them from school, malls. From school? Yes, where other kids at school are recruiting the victims and then they literally leave from school to go do what, what they do. I've had them where they've met them at parties, the mall, um, walking down the street, anywhere and everywhere. Anywhere. And I think parks. Yeah, parks. I don't remember who mentioned it, but they prey on the vulnerable. They can spot Mm -hmm. the kid that's a throwaway, the kid that's a runaway, the kid that hasn't eaten in a couple days, whatever they have that their spidey sense, Mm -hmm. it's a horrible one to have, but they can spot those things. And that's how they prey on the victims. But they get them anywhere. I think two things, too, just to to amplify what she just said is uh, I, I think the foster care system is a system that we continuously have to look at and we mm-hmm. need to look at it very carefully because it's a system that um, if if you are a predator, um, it's an area that you would be drawn to and folks, children that are in that are by definition vulnerable. Mm-hmm. In addition to that, not just being in the foster system, but aging out of the foster system and not having a place to go when when the day changes and all of a sudden you're supposed to be on your own. And when you look at, I think Liz or Tracy mentioned if you look at runaway youth and homeless youth, those folks are particularly vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Um, folks who are struggling with gender identity are particularly vulnerable. So it, it's really, it goes back to the opening statements of it, it's everywhere. Yes. Um, and it's anywhere that there are areas of vulnerability that allow for predators to be able to step in and try to see what could be accomplished. Wow. And so you, you've uh, mentioned um, to me before, Bob, about um, Anti-Sex Trafficking Lobby Day. Can you explain what, what is that? Yes. Street Grace sponsors the state's Anti-Sex Trafficking Lobby Day. It's an annual event in February, this coming February in 2018. It'll be on February 20th. And that's where we work with the legislators and address the legislation that's being put forth in the session. And we allow or we involve the community and invite folks down to the Capitol. We meet typically at the train station across the street. We have a number of speakers that come in, legislators that come across, and then we all don our purple scarves and we walk walk politely and nicely across the street and have really good interactions and are invited into the offices and to meet with the legislators or invited onto the floor. Last year, we had somewhere around 800 folks that showed up. It's the largest one we've had in the state. Um, This year, we're expecting more than that. Um, we've already got a, a biker club of about 100 bikes that said they're coming and, and everybody will know when they arrive. Um, and then mm-hmm. we've got some schools that have said they want to participate and bring their student leadership down this year, in addition to a number of other folks. So it'll be on February 20th this year. It's usually from about nine to two. And we have a number of legislators that speak to the group and then we deal with and um, and identify what legislative issues we've put forth and how we can best work together with with the community and the faith partners and the legislators to help that get accomplished. That's great. And so all that information will be on my website. So okay. able, so definitely people can, can uh, fi- follow up and find out um, where to go. And in terms of, um, you know, you're a nonprofit, you head up a nonprofit. How do you, are you, um, nonprofits, I know I'm a board member, nonprofits always need donations. So um, what time, what types of things do, do you, do you accept in terms of donations? Um, people volunteer? What, what, what do you, yeah, look for? on our website, which is streetgrace, G-R-A-C-E.org, uh, we have lots of opportunities and ways for people to get involved. The, probably the, the easiest um, is to sign up to be notified and on our email list so that uh, when we have opportunities to volunteer, opportunities to get involved, Lobby Day and other events that we're doing uh, this coming uh, October for the first time, we're going to be doing an event called the Suburban House of Horror. Um, and so I'm excited about that for a couple of weekends leading up to Halloween. We're going to have a house here in Atlanta that has been designed and set up to reflect different sex trafficking stings that have occurred in the city over oh, the wow. last year. Um, and so th- there will be information about that and ways that you can give and donate, uh, obviously, as a not-for-profit. That's, that's how we survive. Okay. Can you just briefly share your contact information for us? Yes. Uh, the easiest way is streetgrace.org, Street. G-R-A-C-E dot org. And my email address is bob at streetgrace.org and would love to connect and help in any way. Great. How about Elizabeth? Um, yes, I'd like to share my contact information, but I'd also like to 
to give everybody a way to make a report. Following up on Tracy's, if you see something, say something. There's also another way you can report it, specifically um, online child exploitation or child sex trafficking. If you go to missingkids.org, that's the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children's one of part of their site, you can make a cyber tip. It can be anonymous. You can put your information in it. It doesn't matter to us. But you are asked a bunch of questions with drop-down boxes. It's very easy to fill out, but you can put in what you've seen or what you think you've seen on the internet or on hmm. the street, and then we can um, get that back to us and, and start working it that way. So it's a really good way. We get about 5,000 of those a year. Wow. And we have to filter them through the GBI, and then we filter them down to our ICAC task force as well. But we look at every single one of those. So it's it's a good way Incredible. to get information to us. But if you ever have any issues or questions, our office number is 404-270-8870. And my email address is elizabeth.bigham, B-I-G-H-A-M, at gbi.ga.gov. We'll be glad to help out with anything we can. Great. And Tracy? Yeah, people are absolutely welcome to contact uh, me at the DA's office. And my email is Tracy, T-R-A-C-I-E dot Kason, which is C-A-S-O-N at GwinnettCounty.com. And Gwinnett County is two N's, two T's. And I'm going to do a little shameless plug for my friend Tracy Kason, <laughs> who was running for Superior Court Judge. Mm-hmm. So I hope that people will get out and vote for my friend. She's fantastic. <laughs> I think you. you've, you've, she has demonstrated who she is just by this conversation. So I really, really appreciate um, all of you coming on today. Thank you for coming. Thank Thanks you. so much. So once again, this is Dr. Dion's show where you listen to smart dialogue about diversity, leadership, and behavior in the workplace and beyond. Our show airs live on the second Friday of each month at 10 a.m. But you can listen at any time to our shows anytime by visiting GwinnettBusinessRadix.com. We're broadcasting live from Sinesta Hotel. You can like um, my Facebook page at Dr. Dion's show. You can follow me on Twitter at Dr. Dion Poulton, on LinkedIn at Dr. Dion Poulton, and also pick up my book, it's not always racist, but sometimes it is. Shameless plug. And I can also be reached on 404-323-3842. I, I really like to welcome any comments, even show ideas, and uh, to hear your comments with respect to this, this um, show. And I hope that you learned something. I certainly learned something, and I really appreciate all of the work that you're doing to protect our children. It's a very important issue. Thank you. Mm-hmm.